Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. This is uh, class uh, second to last. So next week, I'm going to try to wrap it up next week. Um, but we might end up going one more week after Thanksgiving. Um, and two reviews for the ones I've missed. Yes. <laughs> Those can be private private classes. Yeah. <laughs> Wednesday night or something. Yeah. Um, very good. So we're. You make home visits. <laughs> webinars. Webinars. <laughs> yeah. I can. Um, yeah. So we'll we'll pray and then we'll get right into it. Heavenly Father, we praise you and we thank you for another day, another day to open your word, to learn about you. Lord, we pray that you would sanctify us through your word, through your spirit, empower us so that we can worship you and praise you in truth and humility. And we ask all these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. So, now we come to the Abrahamic covenant. Now, the Abrahamic covenant is perhaps the uh, most important in the Old Testament in the sense that it frames how we understand all other covenants going forward. And we've kind of seen that theme really throughout since even the Edenic covenant or the Edenic covenant, depending on uh, which sort of commentator you read, they're going to call it a different name. But um, there is definitely a theme that these covenants build on one another. As we've talked about, the cultural mandate from that was given to Adam still applies to us to go into the earth and be fruitful and multiply, to subdue the earth. That was then extended and reiterated to Noah. That mandate still applies to us. So that part of the covenant hasn't gone away. Um, the Abrahamic covenant, though, has certain specific redemptive pro uh, promises that are crucial then when we get to the new covenant in Christ and we can see directly how Christ fulfills these promises that were made all the way back to Abraham. So the Abrahamic covenant helps uh, us understand or is the framework, the groundwork, the foundation for all other subsequent covenants. They those subsequent covenants are God's mechanism of fulfilling those promises that he made to Abraham. Alright, so what I'm actually going to do today, which is a little bit different from some of the classes, is if, if anyone has their Bible, we're going to just work through several passages through Genesis. I was like, well, I can talk about Scripture, or we can just read it. Seems like that's a, <laughs> you know... Why spend 30 minutes talking about specific verses when we can just spend five minutes reading them? <coughs> Very good. Okay. So we begin the covenant with Abraham in Abraham in Genesis, excuse me, in Gen book of Abraham, that's not what it's called. Book of Genesis 15 verses 7 through 11. So I'll start by reading this passage. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half 
over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down in the carcasses, Abraham drove them away. So here we have the initiation of the covenant. And it's crucial when we get to, as we will see, we're going to cover the Abrahamic and the Mosaic covenant today, which is a lot. But we'll see how, and Mike preached about this, there's the, a cutting of covenant or a making of covenant. And that, again, this is another theme. How did God create the covenant with Adam after the fall, Adam and Eve? He, he clothes them with skins from an animal. So there's the idea that there was an animal that was sacrificed or killed and then used its skins to cover Adam and Eve. So here what we have is Abraham is being brought into covenant with God and another type of sacrifice is happening. These animals are being butchered, cut in half, laid open, and then later, uh, yeah, actually, uh, a few passages which we're going to read, how God actually passes between these things. And so there we can see that these are the beginnings of sort of a uh, prototype of the sacrificial system, how God then communes with man the significance and the importance of blood sacrifices in order to cover the sins of man so that man can come into God's presence. The other important note about this is this is um, Abraham asks you know, a, a reasonable question here. He says, oh Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? So what is the promise that he will give him the promised land? And Abraham essentially says, well, how do I know that I will get that? And this is where the covenant comes in. So the promise is, there are several promises, but among them are you will receive the land and all the nations will be blessed because, uh, through you. And this is how you know it will come to pass. And the covenant, as we've talked about, the covenant in general is the, for the lack of a better word, it's the contract. It's the constitution. It's the thing that guarantees the promises that God has given us. So the covenant is the very thing that binds and gives us assurance for the promises that God gives us. And that's what we see here. Abraham is promised things from God. And God says, this is the covenant I make with you so that you know and you have assurance that those things will come to pass. So continuing on uh, in chapter 15, verses 17 through 21. So this is just after that portion of he's cut the animals in half and laid them open. And this is God's response to that sacrifice. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, Hittites, the Perizzites, and Rephaim, and the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Gershites, and the Jebusites. Uh, Genesis 15, 17 through 21. Did I? Yes, yeah, sorry, I skipped uh, 12 through 16. Thank you. Yes, sorry. Yes, so God's response to the sacrifice, not in the sense that the sacrifices were causing God to do this, because God directed Abram 
at this time, Abram, to do this sacrifice. But here is God entering into covenant. And what does he do? He passes between the sacrificed animals. So God's presence then is uh, entering in, or rather man is entering into God's presence through the sacrifice of animals. That's the important part. The man is entering God's presence through the blood of animals. The other element of the Abrahamic covenant, and again, this is going in the idea that the Abrahamic covenant forms our understanding of all their covenants after this, is that it is an everlasting covenant. And God makes that explicit in Genesis 17, verse 7. So skipping ahead, Genesis 17, verse 7 says, And I will establish my covenant, the one he just cut, between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. So there is another promise that this covenant that God has made with Abraham or Abram is an everlasting covenant that will be to his descendants, that will be to his seed. So that's another important element that we get to is that the seed of Abraham now become the envoys. They are the ambassadors for God. And so if you want to enter into God's presence, you must do that through the people of Israel, through the Hebrews. It is only through them that access to God is made available. So they then are his chosen people. All right. We're just moving through it quickly. All right, we come now to... So that's the, the content or the substance of the covenant. There are a lot of other aspects to it. Obviously, we don't have time to... We could do a whole class just on the Abrahamic covenant. Um, it is certainly very rich. Um, but those are the highlights of the content of the covenant. So now we come to what is the sign or the seal of the covenant. And this is a point where I want to perhaps take a bit of a typological rabbit trail. So, of course, we know what is the sign of the Abrahamic covenant? What's the sign of the old, old covenant? Circumcision. Very good, yes. Genesis 17, verses 9 through 13. And God say, said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you, throughout their generations. And this is my covenant, you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign be, uh, of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised, every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or brought, excuse me, not brought, bought, purchased, with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring. Both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. So, the sign and seal is a physical one. It's an external one. It's circumcision. And that is then also placed on not just the uh, adult male 
believers, if you will, of Israel, but it's placed on the children and subsequently every male of any Hebrew's house. So that's the important part. And this is where we, in the New Testament context, we gain a lot from passages like this in defense of paedo-baptism. So we would say, we, we rightly say, that the sign and seal of the new covenant is baptism. It's no longer circumcision. So circumcision was the sign and seal of the Abrahamic covenant, of the old covenant. Now that that has been fulfilled, Christ has said that the new sign and seal of the covenant is baptism, which they call, or which the New Testament calls, a, a circumcision of the heart. This idea that we are baptized into Christ, we are then uh, put off the old flesh, put on new flesh, and we are born again in Christ. That mirrors the Old Testament. I just have a question. Yes. Is there any way where, anywhere where it specifically says that males and females should be baptized? Because I'm just thinking, oh, it's just circumcised, which is right. just males. So that's a, that is a great observation. Obviously, in the uh, New Testament, we have the Right. We have the we have the mandate though that now in Christ there is no what Jew or Greek, male or female. So you're right. In the Old Testament, women obviously are getting circumcised. So this is where they were under the federal headship of their uh, patriarch, whoever was the leader of that family at that time. They fell under, and and. The famous example of, that really drives us home is the story of Achan. His sons and daughters and family are all killed because of his sin, right? And so that illustrates for us that notion that the patriarch, whoever was the head of the family, if he became a Hebrew or he was a Hebrew, then everyone underneath him who was under his household, under his care and provision, if they were males, they received the sign of the covenant. If they were females, obviously they don't receive the sign of the covenant, but they are attached by the very fact that they are his descendants, his children. They are now in the covenant as well. In the new covenant, because Christ now has um, fulfilled it, there is now no distinction between Jew and Greek. This is why uh, Paul, uh, later on, Tells, the church, uh, tells Peter at the Council of Jerusalem, one of the things they're arguing about in the book of Acts is whether or not Christians have to become Jews first, which is have to be circumcised. That's really what they're talking about. They're not talking about, oh, they have to adhere to all the dietary laws. It's, they were really talking about one particular thing. How do you become a Hebrew? It was circumcising them. So the argument there was no, because there is no longer any differentiation between Jew and Gentile, and, uh, there, and then also male and female, men and women in the New Testament are equally baptized. There's no distinction in the sense, there's no, there's no precedent in the New Testament where uh, the um, head of the household is baptized, and then that baptism somehow automatically applies to his wife or his female children. There is precedent in the New Testament where the head of the household is baptized, but then all the other members of the household are also baptized. They also receive the sign of the covenant. Does that make sense? 
So just as the sign of the covenant was extended, it wasn't that Achan, for example, was circumcised and therefore all of his children were sort of uh, metaphorically circumcised. It's no, no, the, it's the, the sign was extended to those in the household. But now, because there is no distinction in Christ, in a salvific standpoint, now then, men and women are equally baptized. Does that answer your question? Okay, very good. Yeah, no, that's an important distinction. Yeah, no, I had a couple comments on that because it was interesting. So you're saying that baptism is the sign of the new covenant? Yes. It, like, replaces the old time covenant. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing was... There's, so there's an assumption based on some of the examples of families being baptized that all of them are baptized. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm curious about that because I think there are cases where it says that um, after the uh, those who were baptized also glorified God. So the question would be like, does that inc exclude people who like, um, like will that include exclude infants? Is kind of one of the debates. Is that, Right, if they're right. old enough to actually understand what that means, then how right. do they do that? Right. So then would they not be baptized? Right. So that, obviously, that in my mind, that begs the question of, if the new covenant sign and seal of baptism um, can only be given or only applies to those have, who have the capacity to understand it and to glorify God, then we would say that the old covenant sign and seal of circumcision must then have or should have only been given to those who understood it and were able to then glorify God and it's quite clear that an eight day old is neither capable or, or understanding of that they are even being brought into this covenant so this gets into a larger discussion and um, so here's, here's a bit of the rabbit trail um, I call this, uh, we live in a, in a world where I call it uh, Disney philosophy, okay? The Disney movie philosophy is what? You are your own person, and you have it within you to fulfill your destiny and to, you know, to break all the rules, and I mean, you fill in the Disney movie, right? We've all seen it. We're, we're all American. We know what's going on. Julia is being brought up in that to our children, uh, <laughs> Because sometimes I'll make these references and she's like, I don't know. <laughs> but we get it because we, we've been raised here. We understand um, that idea that you are this rugged individual is a not strictly uniquely American experience, but it's a very American understanding of reality. This sort of existential individualism that is I exist by myself on this island and my decisions are mine alone, and therefore, I'm not really beholden to anybody else's decisions, anybody else's character, or anybody else's content, uh, the content of their character. And what we're presented with in Scripture is a very different idea of reality, a very different view of reality. So it's very explicit in the Old Testament from examples like we just read in Genesis with Abraham and the promises that are given to Israel, to the patriarchs that then extend to their children. Why? Because of who their forefathers were. It says this several times that the reason God is patient 
with Israel going forward is because of his promises to the patriarchs. If it hadn't been for the patriarchs, he would have just cast them aside. You read the book of Ezekiel, and God is very close to just pitching them out with the trash. He's, he's getting close. But he, it's there in that book. It's He's remembering his promises with the patriarchs. Had it not been their forefathers, had it not been those uh, predecessors to the Israelites, they would have been cast off. And that goes to that idea that we are actually much more connected to other people than what we're taught in our culture. So in our culture, we're taught that, for example, baptism is this solely individual expression of your personal faith. Another phrase that I, you know, I grew up hearing, I'm sure we've all heard it, the, the, you pray the sinner's prayer and they say, I accept Christ as my personal Lord and Savior. Well, that phrase, personal Lord and Savior, you can kind of extrapolate it from Scripture. But that notion, the, 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 the presuppositions of, about making a phrase like that, I don't think have their founding and foundation in Scripture. They are being, they're being influenced by external philosophies. Philosophies such as existentialism, freedom as an assumption. These ideas that we are morally, existentially free agents and that we control our own destinies and then that sense that God's sovereign will is just sitting back waiting to see what happens. Well, scripture gives us a very different understanding of that. And so the argument that I'm making is that, and this is what really did it for me, was going through college and, and discovering all this stuff and learning all this stuff. I realized that there was a different way that scripture was communicating it. Because if you're just raised up in, I can throw stones because this is how it works, you know, my experience. If you're raised in a certain uh, more charismatic denominational sort of framework, yeah, you just assume, okay, scripture's talking about my free will. Everything's just about my free will, and then therefore baptism isn't really necessary. It's just this thing you do, and. You know, it's just like a, it's just some sort of reaffirmation of your faith. And you can do it several times if you so desire, right? You can do it every 10 years or whatever. That assumes that certain type of worldview. And what I realized is that wasn't the only worldview in game, uh, in, in town. It wasn't the only game in town. And when I discovered that, I realized that scripture was presenting something that was very different. And there was a time in my life when I first started coming into the Reform circles, and I started hearing about covenant theology and federal headship and this notion of um, the, the significance of the sacraments of baptism and communion. I, was, I said this, uh, you could ask Scott Hedgecock. Um, I actually said this to him. I said, it seems like it's a different religion than what I was raised in. And my father can attest to that too. That what he grew up and what I grew up in uh, seems like it's a totally different worldview. And it is. Philosophically, it is a different foundational worldview. So what I'm making the case for is that if we look at Scripture, particularly the Abrahamic Covenant and the Old Testament, into the New Covenant, there is a sense, not a sense, It's to me it's very clear that the idea and the concept of federal headship shows us that if the father and the mother, but particularly if one of the spouses is saved, there's some 
interesting texts in one of the epistles where I think it's Paul talks about um, if the, unbe- the unbelieving spouse is justified by the believing spouse. That's one of those passages that's really kind of really interesting to, to study. But if we take that at face value and we accept that, again, that goes into this idea that because the husband and wife, if one is justified and they're one flesh, then somehow God is justifying the other. Why? Because of this mystic union of the covenant of marriage, and then because one member of the marriage is brought into the covenant with Christ, that covenant now extends to both of them. So when you read scripture, you realize that these strict individual categories where we're all our own little island start to break down pretty quick, and what we're left with is a much more robust and uh, idea of headship in the sense that if the mother and father are Christians, the child that is born to them, just like the Hebrews, is a Christian. They are born into the covenant. They are a child of the promise. They are the seed of Abraham. Because we would now say, in Christ, we are the seed of Abraham. The children that we then bear are an extension of that promise. So our children, my children, are by virtue of who they're born to, they are in the covenant. And so we baptize them and give them the sign and seal of the covenant so that they know they are in the covenant. Just like the Hebrews. Why were they circumcised? Because it was the sign and seal. It was the proof. It was the stamp on the letter that said this thing has actually taken place. And that's why we do it publicly as well. Circumcision, obviously, in the Old Testament, wasn't necessarily a public thing. However, the men, there wasn't, uh, well, there weren't locker rooms and things like that. But the idea is that if you were circumcised in the Old Testament, it was pretty obvious amongst all the other men, right? Now, because it's changed, we perform baptism as a public ceremony. And I think we're actually doing one today. We do it before the congregation in a public ceremony so that those children, and then if adults are baptized as well, those adults now have witnesses who can testify, no, this thing has actually taken place. And that's a significant aspect as well, that it's done publicly. It's a public confession of your faith, but it's also done publicly so that there are witnesses who can testify to you if you ever happen to have a crisis of faith. No, you have been baptized into Christ. I was there. I saw it happen. So those, all those things combined tell us that something is actually happening in baptism. It's one of the um, mechanisms through which we receive salvation. Uh, What is it? The, uh, is it the uh, modus operandi? The, uh, Basically, how God saves us. And there are several theological elements throughout that process. There's the presence of the Holy Spirit, there's sanctification, there's justification, there's baptism, there's communion. All these things coupled together is our experience and how God saves us. I have three questions. Yes. I would expect questions here. Okay, so number one, you're a Christian parent, you have children, they rebel. You and I talked about that at co-op last year. Um, but still, like, what then, right? Yeah. Question number two, 
you're not a believer, you have kids, you become a believer. Yes. Okay. You have adult children. What of that? Yeah. Third question is for clarification. Are you then saying some worldviews would say salvation is yours to gain? Yes. And this is saying salvation would be yours to lose if, in fact, you reject it. Yes, so I, so I'll answer those in, in reverse order because the first one is the easiest to answer. <laughs> uh, the second, second, the, sorry, the last one is the easiest to answer. Um, yes, the world and sort of uh, contemporary evangelicalism teaches us that salvation is something that we play a part in. It's sort of equal uh, God's work and equally our work. And when I say work, I mean like my mental ascent and my cognitive ability to figure this stuff out, then I've been saved because of those things. And then subsequently your behavior and your action then uh, justify you. Here, as particularly in the New Covenant, it's no longer a covenant of works. And this is what's a little bit different from the Old Testament, is that the Old Testament did have work conditions. They were expected to, especially the Mosaic Law, they were expected to work and perform certain sacrifices, certain deeds following the law. So it was work-based in the Old Testament. Now that Christ has fulfilled the, new, the Old Covenant, he's fulfilled those works of the law, now then we are imparted his righteousness. So you could say it that way, that it's no longer ours to gain, that is the sense we have to do something to enter into the covenant. We are drawn by the Holy Spirit, and God draws us into his covenant so that no man can boast. We are saved, we are rescued, that notion. Yes, it, and now we could, we could articulate it that way. So now it is no longer ours that we have to go and try to grab it and retain it. But now it is ours freely through the gift of the Holy Spirit. So it's ours to lose. Yeah, you could, you could articulate it that way. Um, the other question about um, children before you are uh, saved. I would say this. The life that you have before you are brought into Christ is not under the same conditions, if you will, as your life now. So... If someone is married and divorced before they become come into Christ, that marriage and subsequently that divorce are treated differently than any marriage or divorce that would be after they have entered into covenant with Christ or after their baptism. So that is a larger discussion of how we actually uh, define those categories and how we actually handle that scenario. But suffice it to say for now, there is a distinct difference between how those relationships are recognized in Scripture versus how two believers are knit together and recognized in Scripture. Uh, and then the third or the first question um, about children who fall away. If they are children that were born to a couple that was not saved, Obviously, there's not a lot of promises there given that they will somehow follow the Lord, right? So if, if, uh, if for example, if I had a family, another family before my uh, only family, uh, and I, it was before I was ever saved or baptized, then that family, that situation, 
does not carry with it the same promises and the same conditions, again, that the family that I have in Christ carries. Yeah. So, I mean, this begs another question of our... A question I've yeah, asked several times. Can people actually enter into marriage covenants apart from Christ? That is, can unbelievers actually be married? Truthfully married. Because if we, if we say, well, the covenant of marriage is a God-given covenant, and now it's a Christ-sanctioned covenant, can people enter into it apart from Christ? I'm inclined to say no. <laughs> so they're not actually married, at least before God. But I'm not, like, really firm on that. I mean, I could be swayed either way. But that, that goes to that idea that there is something distinct and unique about a covenantal relationship and then a marriage, a true marriage, that is actually in Christ, that is rooted in Christ. Okay. Yes, so that is the Abrahamic covenant. Now we're going to begin a little bit on the Mosaic covenant. We'll go a little bit longer today. Since our schedule seems to be perpetually 10 minutes. Church starts 10 minutes late and we start 10, 10 minutes late, so that's fine. It's really 9.35, that's what it is. <laughs> so the Mosaic covenant. Um... Transitioning, or not really transitioning, but moving forward from the Abrahamic covenant, obviously the Abrahamic covenant is from Abraham to Moses. So we go through the beginning of the Exodus account, and after we exit Egypt is when at Mount Sinai, Moses is given the, the Mosaic covenant. So this covenant is specifically, it's given to Moses, but who is it to? The seed of Abraham. So those who went into captivity in Egypt through Joseph, and then those were the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and so we come on forward. What we're presented with is a new and a, a more sophisticated degree or new sophisticated covenant. Features of the Mosaic covenant are, first and foremost, the written law. So we have the giving of the law in a formal sense. It's actually written down, so it's the expressed word of the Lord. And in that, the law is contained the instructions for the sacrificial system. So here, God is uh, beginning his work of creating scripture, of instituting his actual written word to govern his people. Okay? So first we have the written law or the written word. And then from that we have the construction of the tabernacle. God gives them law and informs them how they are to build and construct the tabernacle. And what is the purpose of the tabernacle? So that Israel now can enter into God's presence and offer him sacrifices to satisfy his holiness, to satisfy his righteous requirements. Requirements. So why did God give the law? Why did he give the moral law and the sacrificial law to Israel? Because his holiness, his righteousness, demanded perfect obedience. So this goes all the way back to Adam. What did God demand from Adam and Eve? Perfect obedience. Now for them it was very simple. One 
Prohibition. Don't eat from the knowledge of the tree of good and evil, or the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Sit down. Yes. Got it. All the words were there. <laughs> um, but now they have a stricter and more complete, more robust law that enables them to now offer atonement sacrifices for their sins so that they can enter into God's presence. So I have the law that is presented and the construction of the tabernacle. So therefore the law, the sacrificial system, equipped Israel to satisfy the holiness of God. So the law equipped Israel to satisfy the holiness of God, and we call that satisfaction atonement. Now we learn throughout uh, Leviticus and Deuteronomy and the Old Testament that this sacrificial system was a mere covering. It was not a full atonement for sin. It was not what we call full atonement. That is, it had to be offered again and again and again. Each year or several times a year, I think the um, yeah, what is it? The burnt offering was offered twice a year. So the purpose of the sacrificial system is for the atonement of Israel for their sins. Alright, so now we're gonna look quickly at a few of the types of sacrifices. And I think it's interesting to see. Uh, how they are um, or really the significance of them and then how they actually apply uh, through Christ so the first is the burnt offering so this is perhaps the uh, most significant of all the types of offerings that Israel could give so this was done at the tabernacle and then later when they built when Solomon built the temple the temple was a uh, copy or a permanent tabernacle. So the temple and the tabernacle shared pretty much the exact same type of construction. It's just that the temple was a more robust permanent version of the tabernacle. So everything that's communicated here regarding how they would interact in the tabernacle is the same how they would interact in the temple. Um, so Leviticus chapter 1 verses 3 through 9 I'll read about the burnt offering. And his offering is a burnt offering from the, from the herd. He shall offer a male without blemish, and he shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make an atonement for him. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord, and Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Then he shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. And the sons of Aaron, the priests, shall put fire on the altar, arrange wood on the fire, and Aaron's sons, the priests, shall arrange the pieces, the head and the fat and the wood that is on the fire on the altar. But its entrails and its legs shall be washed with water, and the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as an offering, as a burnt offering, for food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. So what happens here is that the person who's offering the sacrifices for their uh, atonement, the atonement of their sins, places their hands on the head of the bull, and that act then 
transfers, if you will, transfers their sin, the penalty of their sin, onto that animal. Now, the important note here is that we obviously have never seen this type of sacrifice done. But this isn't one person doing this. This is all of Israel. So now if we fast forward to the time in, under Solomon when the temple is built and they're doing this as a nation, this is something that is happening almost every single day without fail, 24-7 nearly, that you have animals being brought in and they are not then killed quietly first and then brought to the altar and sacrificed. They are brought alive to the altar and killed there. So this was designed to be a very violent, a very bloody, a very messy endeavor. So we, we obviously just see it in pictures and textbooks now. We don't really hear it and smell it. But this was supposed to be a very, and was, a very bloody, visceral experience. The person understood they were watching that animal be butchered, cut in half, torn apart, its blood poured out all over the altar and all over the priests. The idea was that that blood, that sacrifice, was supposed to be them. They understood that. That that should be me. That's what I deserve. But God is taking his justice out on this animal instead of me. So that's an important element. Because we do the same thing with the crucifixion. This is why the, the movie The Passion of the Christ was so effective for, uh, or uh, emotive for so many people. Because it actually put teeth to our understanding of the scripture, of the crucifixion. We can't really imagine how gruesome it actually was. But then when we see it, even in cinematic form, we understand it much better. So this is one of those instances where Moses is giving them the law, receiving the law and giving it to Israel. But really Israel's understanding it better once these things are actually taking place. So it's for us as well. We need to actually understand that Christ was crucified and the pain and suffering and the blood that was poured out there wasn't just this, oh, that was didn't really need to happen. It was all just symbolic anyways. No, no, it needed to happen. It had to happen because it had been happening. That is how God had been performing sacrifices for thousands of years. Blood and uh, pain and violence and the smells of the blood and the smells of the burnt sacrifices and the entrails and everything like that, that was part of the offering. That they understood, this should be me. And pretty much uh, every other type of offering follows that same pattern. Now the burnt offering was unique in the sense that the whole animal was burnt. The bones and everything, they just didn't burn it until it was completely gone. There are other offerings where they share part of the meal, for example, the peace offering and the guilt offering. And there are other types of offerings uh, in the, in the uh, Levitical code um, that were for different purposes. But the, the main one, which is the burnt offering, is for the atonement of that sinner. So we don't actually have time to get through those other ones. Um, but if you look at, if you go, you read through the book of Leviticus, what does the sacrificial system teach us about God? Well, first, it teaches us that his holiness is 
complete. His holiness is complete. His demand for obedience is perfect and complete. And therefore, the consequences of sin are not just a slap on the wrist. The, the real consequences for sin are those which they, Israel, are seeing on a daily basis. What are the consequences of sin? Death and destruction. That is the consequence of sin. But God is being merciful and providing a way in which Israel can be atoned for through the sacrifice of animals. So, here's the important part. Israel really cannot enter God's presence apart from blood substitution. So Israel could not enter into God's presence apart from the substitution of a blood sacrifice. So blood, the sacrifice of blood, the pouring out of blood on the altar, covering the tabernacle with it. And if you think about it, I don't think there's any reference in the Old Testament of them cleaning things in between. So this was, we, we, again, we see the pictures and everything's nice and clean and white marble and all this stuff. And it's like, it was probably a pretty, a pretty gruesome affair. And there was blood everywhere. And uh, I remember hearing uh, pastor uh, talk about one time, uh, around the time of Christ when they were performing sacrifices, they actually created these like uh, um, moats around the temple to funnel the blood out because it was running like a river constantly the blood so the, it's not like, oh one animal here and there it's no no it's thousands of animals a day and so um yeah it, it's just it really challenges our kind of romantic ideas of what the sacrificial system looked like when you understand it in its actual form it helps us understand the significance and the importance of these actual physical elements. And that goes back to that idea of baptism. Now, we live in a world where it is hyper-spiritualized, where it's only a spiritual thing. The water, it doesn't really matter. But as Christians, when we read the Old Testament and then read the New Testament, we realize, no, the water is actually important. There's actually something important about the bread and the wine. These physical created elements that God has given to us as signs and seals of the covenant, as the sacraments, they actually have importance. And obviously we can, we can go too far with that as we would say the Catholics do, right? Um, particularly with communion. But we do want to avoid any type of... Um, making it purely just imagery, purely just spiritual significance. Okay? Uh, let's see. The last thing is... Oh, okay. I'll mention this. Um, really what I'm talking about is typology sometimes, which is that connection between the Old Testament sacrificial system and Christ's crucifixion. All right, so the animals are... Uh, the blood is poured out on the altar... Christ's blood is poured out on the tree, that kind of idea. That's typology. What we want to avoid is mere resemblance typology. So we want to avoid mere resemblance. That is, well, they kind of look like each other, but their content isn't really significant. It's just the fact that they kind of resemble each other. That is kind of like surface level typology. And that's what can happen. We can just say, oh, look at that. That's kind of neat. And we don't really understand that, no, no, the physical nature of it is what makes that significant. 
why is it that God is requiring a whole animal and the blood and the bones and the guts to actually be used? Now we understand why Christ was physically crucified. So this goes into the notion of people will say things like, well, the crucifixion didn't actually happen. Christ didn't actually rise. He didn't actually have a real body. It was all just a phantom. Well, then why is it actually happening in the Old Testament? Was all that just made up and a phantom as well? So no, clearly there's an importance here that the sacrifice that Christ gave actually did happen. His blood was actually poured out. And that has significance for us. Any questions? Very good. All right. Thank you.